Uh, we're talking about Russia, Ukraine, and Jewish history that's interwoven together with that. Jews played a huge role in the history of Russia and Ukraine, and Russia and Ukraine played a huge role in the history of the Jews. So we're not going to be able to cover everything today, but we'll see. We'll get through as much as we can. I really want to focus on one Gemara uh, that really kind of ties into what's happening right now. And if we have time, we'll also analyze the conflict a little bit beyond what we see just in the media. Okay, so um, just a little bit of background. I'm going to take you back in time, do a little bit of history. You remember the Roman Empire? Everybody remembers the Roman Empire. How does the Roman Empire come to an end? You remember this whole story? How the Roman Empire falls apart? So a couple of hundred years before it falls apart, the Roman Empire gets very large and very hard to administer. And so it gets split in half. You hear of this before? There's a Western Roman Empire and an Eastern Roman Empire. And so the Western Roman Empire was centered in Rome, in Italy. And the Eastern Roman Empire was centered in... Not yet. <laughs> in Constantinople. So if you remember the Emperor Constantine, who was the first Roman Empire to convert, Emperor to convert to Christianity, he decided to make a new capital for himself in the East. So there was an old city, Byzantium, a Greek city, right on where Turkey is today. And he built on that old town a new capital city. And of course, he named it after himself. So it's Constantinople, which today is Istanbul, right? Istanbul is Constantinople, right? So Constantine builds the city for him, for himself, and for this new Eastern kind of Roman Empire. And what ends up happening is the Western Roman Empire falls apart. As we know, it got overrun by all these barbarians and whatever at the end of the fifth century. But the Eastern Roman Empire survives that and actually flourishes and kind of becomes this new Rome. So today we refer to it as the Byzantine Empire, but that's just for like historical reasons, just so not to confuse the two Roman empires. But really, they never called themselves Byzantines. The people in the Eastern Roman Empire just always called themselves the Roman Empire. They were Romans, right? and the, the emperors were Caesar, and that's it. So it just continued. So this was the, the next, the second Rome was Constantinople, after the original Roman in Italy fell apart. So why do we need to know that? Because the first source that I want to share with you is from the Emperor Constantine the Seventh. So that was Constantine the First, who built Constantinople. Now we're going to Constantine the Seventh in the ninth, in the tenth century. So he was not Constantine the Seventh was not so interested in running his empire. He always had some co-emperor or somebody else doing the work for him. He was more of a scholar. He wanted to learn. He was, you know an educator or whatever, he, he really loved history and he felt like history is disappearing, people are forgetting things. So he actually wrote a number of really important texts that are important for us today because it gives us a glimpse into that world over a thousand years ago. And he wrote a lot about the, the history and the geography and all that of the empire and the regions around the empire. So uh, in one of his books called the Administrando Imperio, <clears throat> okay, I butchered that. So he wrote like this. He tells us the history of Kiev, the history of Kiev. And he says that there were three brothers whose names were Ki, Shek, and Horiv. And they built the stronghold of Kiev, also called Sambatas. That's what he says. And who were these three brothers? They were Khazar brothers from Khazaria. There were three brothers from Khazaria that built the city of Kiev. Sambat. Actually, in, in all the early sources, especially in Arabic sources, it's always called Sambat or Zambat before it's called Kiev. 
And what is Kazaria? Who remembers Kazaria? Anybody read the Kuzari? Yeah, you remember this? So Kazaria was this Turkic empire in what's that region today, Ukraine, Russia, southern Russia, the Caucasus region, that area around the Black Sea, the Sea of Azov, that, that area. So, and they were this powerful Turkish empire. And they were a rival to the Byzantine Empire. They had a bit of a love-hate relationship. They were allies sometimes. They fought sometimes. And the most amazing thing about Khazaria is that around the year 740, their king, King Bulan, decided to convert to Judaism. And it's a very famous story because later, Rabbi Yehuda Levi wrote a whole book about it, the Khuzari, where he kind of, um, let's say, f gives a fictional account of what could have happened. Like, it's not... It's more of like a story, but based on true events, where the dialogue kind of between the king and, and the, the rabbis that he spoke to and how he ultimately decided that Judaism was a true faith and how he converted to Judaism. So it's a famous book. It was one of the classics of Judaism, the Kuzari, and it's based on this. Uh, and we have a lot of archaeological historical evidence to support it, that this happened. In fact, what, one of the amazing things is Kazari was a very powerful empire, and you can find Khazarian coins all over. Archaeologists have found them all over the world, in England, in China, and even in Sweden. And one of the coins that was found in Sweden is called the Moses coin. You can look it up after. And it's minted. It's a Khazarian coin. And what's amazing about it is it was modeled on Arabic coins. And on Arabic coins at the time, it would always say Muhammad is the true prophet of Allah, whatever. And this is the same exact coin. Except instead of Muhammad, it says Moses. So it says Moshe is the true prophet of God instead of Muhammad is the true prophet of Allah. So they minted even coins um, modeled on the Arabic coins, but with like a Jewish twist to it. Uh, so that's the, the, the Khazarians. And we've, we have even a letters of correspondence between various rabbis in Spain, Sephardic rabbis, and the kings of Khazaria. And in one account, the king's name is Sabriel. It's possible it's the same person, Bulan, probably when he converted, he took a Jewish name, Sabriel. So this king, around the mid-8th century, converted to Judaism. So historians debate how much did, did the whole empire follow? Were all the Khazarians now converting to Judaism? Was it just the royal family? The consensus is really that it was just the royal family that converted. And most of the people didn't follow. But Khazaria had a huge influx of Jews coming from... Persia, from the Persian Empire, from Bavel. At that time, that's where most Jews lived in the Middle East. And, you know, Jews always go where there's freedom, where there's opportunity. Khazaria was this growing place. And Jews flocked there, so there was a lot of Jews in Khazaria. And uh, maybe you heard of this because sometimes um, people talk about the origins of, like, Ashkenazi Judaism as if they came from Khazaria, which is not true. It's, for some reason, this, like, legend that gets passed around a lot that once the Khazar Empire fell apart, that all those Jews fled west to Europe, and that kind of gave rise to the Ashkenazi Jewish community. And it's not true. Like, genetic analysis has already been done, and historical and everything, and uh, there's really no evidence to support that, but you hear that a lot. Sometimes you hear it in, like, anti-Semitic kind of conspiracy theories that they're not, like, real Jews, they're imposters, you know, they're Khazari Turks or whatever. But it's all nonsense. So, but the Khazars were legitimate, the royal family legitimately converted to Judaism and had a legitimate large population of Jews that migrated there. So let's put these things together. Um, the, king, the Emperor Constantine tells us that these three brothers from Khazaria established Kiev and its original name was Sambat. So now the next question, I mean, were these Khazar brothers Jewish? Maybe they were Turks. Were they Turks? Were they Jewish? But the, the key to solving the puzzle is the name of the town. They called it Sambat. Yeah, what does Sambat mean? 
Does it ring a bell, this word, sambad? Where do we hear that word? <laughs> Maybe. It's related to Shabbat. There's a very important word. You, there's this idea, a very ancient Midrash, of the river Sambation. You ever heard of the Sambation? Right? So 2,700-some years ago, when the Assyrian Empire destroyed the northern kingdom of Israel, right, they exiled the, the so-called ten lost tribes. Right? Ten of the tribes were kicked out of Israel and went wherever. And there's this kind of myth uh, of the ten lost tribes. And according to this legend, the ten lost tribes were settled past this mystical or mythical Sambation River. And which comes from the word Shabbat because presumably, according to the story, this river was raging all week long. And the current was so strong you couldn't cross it. And then it would only rest on Shabbat. The river would rest on Shabbat when you couldn't cross the river. So, you know, it's like, it's, it's more of like a myth. It's a midrash that like this, the ten lost tribes are like unreachable. They're in some mysterious land far away that guarded by this Sambation river. And like, we can never find the, these 10 lost tribes. So if you put this together, you know, the city of Kiev is of course built on the Dnieper river, right? Which was back then for Khazaria, their kind of Northern extreme. So if you're thinking about like Jewish Khazarian settlers that are exploring and trying to find a new village up north, and they reach this place, this, this big river, and to them, this was the Sambation River, right? So they named the settlement Sambat. And there's a lot of interesting things that relate to this. Um, there's a, an idea that was actually pushed by a lot of Europeans, that the tribe of Dan was exiled to this region specifically, that the lost tribe of Dan, and some people say it doesn't really have much historical support, this idea, uh, but you find in this region a lot of things that are named Dan, like the Dnieper River and the Dneista River and the Don River. And, and there's a lot of Dans in this area and Denmark and Sweden and all this. There's a whole thing of like, uh, they call it like Scandinavian Israelism, that the Scandinavians thought that they are the descendants of the tribe of Dan. And you see a lot of Dan. And like, what does Denmark mean? It means land of the Danes, land of the Dans. Right? Some people say that their origins are from the tribe of Dan, because they themselves don't know where the Danes came from. So they think maybe the Danes came from the Dans, right? They got exiled, they went north. Right? So again, it doesn't have much historical, there's no historical support for this. Uh, it was just an interesting idea. So perhaps these brothers thought that they had found these lost tribes or whatever it is, uh, but they named the settlement Sambat, and it becomes Kiev. Now, the real history really takes off when it becomes part of Russia, of the Rus. So a little bit north of Kiev, there's a city called Novgorod, which literally means like a new city. And it was these Slavic tribes that settled this city. They created this new city, but they couldn't defend it from various barbarians around it. So they invited a Scandinavian king, Rurik, to come and take over and be the king and defend this land because they couldn't take care of it. So Rurik comes across the Baltic Sea and takes over and becomes this new king of Novgorod. And he starts expanding from there and he takes over Kiev. And so you have this new entity, which was called the Rus, which was constantly fighting with Khazaria. That was their biggest enemy. They were constantly fighting each other, the Khazars and the Rus. And the Rus, the name, it's not clear where the name comes from. Either it comes from the first king, Rurik, or it comes from the, the rowers that came, the rowboats, the rowers that came across the Baltic Sea who were called the Rutsi. So they were called the Rus. And so there's this new entity, which is often called Kievan Rus, Kievska Rus, that it was this new empire, this new kingdom, and became very powerful. 
and it ended up conquering Kiev and played a big role in the destruction of Khazaria. And then Kiev becomes like this capital of this new kingdom called Rus. And so Kiev was actually the, one of the first capitals of what you might call Russia or this whole region. Now, here's where it gets really interesting. If you know a little bit about Russian history, you know that you can't have Russian history without the Mongols. Because the Mongols come in as a wave from the East, the Golden Horde, and take everything over. And there's this new kind of, they were called, you know what they're called in Russian? They're called the Tatars. Tatar. You know what Tatar comes from? Tatar comes from the Greek word Tartarus, which means hell. Like these were like demons that came from hell <laughs> that came and were, they, they just raped and pillaged and destroyed everything and they burned everything down. In Kiev and every city, they burned everything down. And so the, 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 the Tars, the Mongols were ruthless and they just took, they were ruthless. Get it? Get it? <laughs> they were ruthless and they took everything over and then crushed everything. And so that now after Khazaria, really, the Tatars were the main enemy and the Rus were always trying to fight off these Mongol invaders that are constantly coming across from the east and pillaging and, and stealing everything. And during this whole time, over the years, this new city becomes the leader in the defense against the Tatars. And that new city is Moscow. Okay, so Moscow becomes like the new, the new place to be. And Moscow actually ends up succeeding in completely destroying the Tatars or stopping them and reunifying this whole region okay, from Kiev and Novgorod and Moscow and unifies this whole territory. So during the time of Ivan III, that this took place, that he was able to finally subdue the Tatars. And this is where it gets really interesting because at the exact same time that this is happening, and this is the mid 1400s now, mid to late 1400s, at the same time that that's happening, if you know, if you remember what ha what's happening in Constantinople, the Ottomans are coming from the east, the Ottoman Turks, and they are just destroying the Byzantine Empire. In 1453, they take over Constantinople. They turn it into Istanbul. And then shortly after, the old Byzantine Empire is destroyed and disappears and winks out of existence. It's gone. And remember, it's not the Byzantine Empire, it's the Roman Empire, right? So the Roman Empire is gone. So what happens now? All these people from Byzantium, from the Byzantine Empire, flee, and most of them, a lot of them go north. They go to Russia. And why would they go there? Because it was these Byzantines that actually missionized Russia, made it Christian, and the Russians were part of the Greek Orthodox Church. Right? To this day, there's the Russian Orthodox Church. It's not Catholic, it's Orthodox. It's affiliated with the Greeks. The Byzantine Empire, by the way, they spoke Greek. The Western Roman Empire spoke Latin. The Eastern Roman Empire spoke Greek. And so uh, it was the Greeks that actually really sent all their missionaries. And so Russia was like spiritually, culturally, connected to the Greek Byzantine Empire. You can see that like every Russian, almost every Russian name is actually a Greek name. Pretty almost everything, like pick any name, you know, like Constantine is like Kostya is a Greek, is a Greek name, right? And then Kirill is one of the, Cyril is one of the people that actually, one of the missionaries that went to Russia and pick any name you want. Ephraim? Yeah, well, my birth name also, my birth name is Yefim, which is a Russian name, but it's a Greek name, it's Euphemius. And Artur is, uh, is a Russian, is a Greek name, right? like, uh, but almost every, whatever. Irina is a Greek name, and Catherine is a Greek name. Like, Alexander. Uh, Alexander's Greek. Alexander the Great, right? Macedonia. Yeah. So, except maybe with the exception of like Vladimir and Igor. Yeah. <laughs> with the exception of like Olga, Vladimir, and Igor. Yeah. I think every other Russian name is, almost every other Russian name is Greek. 
Infamy is your original name. Infamy. Yefim, my name. The Roman Empire falls apart and they, all these people, the priests, go north and they decide, well, what's going to be the new Roman Empire? So Moscow is the new Roman Empire. So Moscow becomes this third Rome. And it wasn't just like a nominal thing. It was they literally the, the Russian royal family, which was still the Rurik dynasty, re really took on that role and believed themselves to be the new Roman Empire. So much so that Ivan IV, Ivan the Terrible, right, the famous Ivan the Terrible, took on a new title. What was his new title? He wasn't the king anymore. He wasn't the prince or the king, the knyaz anymore. He was the tsar, right? And what's the tsar? If you spell it, if you read it the way it's written in English, C-Z-A-R, it's literally Caesar, right? Tsar is just the Russian word for Caesar. So before that, they were called knyaz. They were called, they were like a prince or whatever, a grand duke, whatever, however you want to translate it. And Ivan IV said, no, from now on, I'm the Caesar, right? So they, they really took on that idea of being the third Rome. And with that, I take you to the Gemara that I mentioned, because this is really important. Okay, this idea of three Romes. So we're going to break apart. This is Masachet Sanhedrin, Sanhedrin, page 98a, which is where the sages tell us a lot about Mashiach and what's going to happen at the end of days and so on. <clears throat> so it goes like this. Rabbi Yoshua ben Levi. So Rabbi Yoshua ben Levi, one of the great famous sages, he meets Eliyahu on his way. And he actually, it says where he met him, at the Apitcha de Me'aratah de Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai. So in the, they may, I guess he was praying at the grave of Rashbi, Shimon Bar Yochai, and he meets Eliyahu over there. So remember, Eliyahu is this prophet who became like an angel, and he always comes, you know, at, at a bris, at a Pesach Seder, and like he comes and meets the sages all over the place and as an angel. So he, they ask various questions, and I'll just skip to the important part. So Rabbi Yoshua asks Eliyahu, Eimat ati Mashiach. When's Mashiach coming already? Like, enough. Like, where, where is Mashiach? So he told him, zil Go ask him. Okay, where is he? Where is he sitting? And he tells him, At the gates of the city. What is the city? Which city? This is the Roman Empire. When we say the city in the Roman Empire, what's the city? Talking about the city of Rome, right? I think even in some in some versions of the Gemara, it actually says the Carta de Romi in the city of Rome. And all the commentaries just say, obviously, this is talking about go see him. He's in Rome. He's at the gates of Rome. And then Rabbi Yoshua asks him, Umaisi Manea, like how will I know that it's him? And Rabbi Eliyahu tells him, like again, this deeply mystical thing that he's among all the poor people, among all the Cholaim and the Anies of Cholaim and whatever, all the poor people that are suffering from illnesses, and he's helping them, and, and they are bandaging up, and he's bandaging up. It's a whole thing. We're going to skip that in the interest of time. Uh, but that's how you'll know that it's him. And okay, so he goes there. Shalom. Shalom Alecha Rabbi Umori. He says, hey, how's it going? He found him, my rabbi, my master. And he said, Amar Shalom Alecha, Bar Levaye, you know, good, nice to meet you, the son of the Levi, because he's Rabbi Yoshua ben Levi. And he says, Amar Le'eimat Ati, when are you coming? <laughs> so he told him directly, he meets Mashiach at the gates of Rome, and he says, when are you coming? And he told him, Amar Le'ayom, I'm coming today. So Rabbi Yoshua gets really excited, and he goes and gets ready for Mashiach coming. And Mashiach doesn't come. Okay, so then Rabbi Yoshua meets Eliyahu again, and he asks him, Maya Marlecha, and he says exactly what happened, and he told me that he's going to come today, and he says, Shikori Kasheker, he lied to me, 
Because he told me I own, but he didn't come. So what did Eliyahu answer him? The famous thing that Eliyahu told him, no, 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 you misheard what he said. He says, really what he told you is the Pasuk and Teilim that we sing very often, Hayom in Bekolot Ishmao. Right? It's one of the Pasukim that we read in Teilim in Psalm 95. We read it at Erev Shabbat also, it's one of the Pasukim there. Hayom in Bekolot Ishmao. He'll come today if you listen to Hashem's commandments. I'll listen to Hashem's voice. So if the Jewish people fulfill God's commands, then Mashiach will come immediately, right? There's this idea that Mashiach is present, a potential Messiah is present in every generation. If we merit it, he'll reveal himself immediately. Right? So the fact that Mashiach hasn't come until now, on the one hand, is a little bit discouraging and sad and whatever, but on the other hand, it's also, there's something positive about it, which is that God is giving us time. Right? Like we, we, he's giving us an opportunity to fulfill the mitzvot and actually merit it in a good way. But there is a deadline, right? What's the deadline? 6,000 years, right? We're at 5782 right now. So now we have to put it all together. The Gemara continues. That was the intro to Mashiach being at the gates of Rome. But this is really what I wanted to, to quote here. Shalut talmidav et Rabbi Yossi ben Kisma. So now the students of Rabbi Yossi ben Kisma are asking him a question. Ematai ben Davidba. Again, when's the son of David coming? When's Mashiach coming? And again, there's a long thing. I'm just going to quote the relevant part. And he says like this, Mashiach is going to come when, Kshe'ipol Asharazeh, this gate, again, referring to the gate of Rome, Kshe'ipol Asharazeh, Ve'ibaneh, and it'll be rebuilt, Ve'ipol Ve'ibaneh, and it'll fall again and be rebuilt, Ve'ipol, it'll fall a third time, Ve'ein maspikim libnoto ad sheben David ba, libnoto ad sheben David ba. So, there will be, this gate, Rome, will fall. So just, in context, this is happening before the fall of Rome, right? This is like, we're talking about Talmud times. Uh, so this is like second, third, fourth century, right? So Rome fell at the end of the fifth century, the first Rome. So saying Rome will fall, then it'll be, there'll be a new Rome, and the second Rome will fall, and then there'll be a new Rome, a third Rome, and the third Rome will fall, but there won't be a fourth Rome. There's only gonna be three Romes, and then Mashiach will come. So at some point after the third Rome falls, Mashiach will come. And what was the third Rome? Moscow. Moscow, right? Now, it's important to, to remember, how do in Chazal and Midrash and Gemara, how do we always refer to Rome, to Romans, to this entity, to this empire? What's the term for Rome all the time? It's always Edom, right? Mm -hmm. Edom is Rome. Right? There's like the world of Ishmael, the Arabic Muslim world, and there's the world of Adom. Now, what's Adom? Where does the word Adom come from? Adom is Esav. Esav is Adom because of the red, right? He was born red and he had the red lentil, whatever, the red soup. So Adom comes from red. So this Rome is always associated with red. So if you think about Moscow as well and, and Russia and what it stands for and the whole idea of the red empire and the red square and the red army, everything is red and their red communist flag that used to be red now. So, Rome, Constantinople, and then Moscow. Moscow. That's how you start the conversation today. Right, we have three Romes. The first Rome fell, Constantinople fell, and now there's Moscow. And again, Moscow is this red empire, right? Edom. So let's see. So let's see. Now we have to figure this out. When is the fall of Rome? Right? And tying it into, you had this Soviet Union, which was for sure all associated with red, right? The Soviet Red Army and so on. And the Soviet Union falls apart. 
Now, it comes back in a way very shortly after, right? Within 10 years, well, 10 years, let's say, exactly 10 years later, we have this new president, Putin, right? And what's like one of the first things that he does when he comes to power? First of all, Putin's like this KGB guy who's from the Soviet Union, who's like a Soviet operative, and he takes control. You know what's one of the first things that he did when he came into office? He changed the Russian national anthem back to the Soviet national anthem. That's like one of his first acts in office, right? So he makes a very clear statement, like we're back, right? KGB is back in control. <laughs> it's the same anthem, we're gonna go back to the Soviet Union, right? And he has these designs to rebuild the Soviet empire, right? Which is a lot of what's happening today. This argument of this, there's this nationalistic argument in Russia that Ukraine is part of Russia, right? It's always been part of Russia. Kiev was like a Russian capital before Moscow, right? They'll, they'll argue that the word Ukraine does not exist without Russia. Meaning, let me explain like in Russian. Ukraine in Russian literally, what does it mean? You know what it means? It literally means the border, like Krai, right? Ukraina. It literally means the edge, the border of the Russian empire. <laughs> like, and just to solidify, like when you speak about Ukraine, you don't say that you're in Ukraine. You say that you're not Ukraine. You say that you're on Ukraine. Because, just like you wouldn't say that you're in the border, you're on the border, right? It's so like even the grammar of how it's referred to is in relation to Russia. You are in Ukraine, the country, yeah. you say, I'm on Ukraine. You're on Ukraine. You don't go in Russia. Ukraine. You're on Ukraine. You're not Ukraine. Whatever you yeah. are in Ukraine. Yeah, okay, you're on Ukraine. <laughs> right. So that's like, how his, at least that's how it's been traditionally used grammatically. I'm sure people today use it. Both. Today, today, yeah. yeah. Historically, though, go back 500 years. There were one people. There were one. The first instance, the first, um, the word Ukraine only first appears again in the time of the Ivans, Ivan three and four, as again, this referring to the borders of our, the edges of our empire, All right? So this site, this like Ukrainian kind of nationalism is more recent. It's a more recent thing. It probably started about 100, 150 years ago when a lot of the nationalist movements started in the late 1800s, early 1900s, right? So for, that's the Russian argument. So a lot of the Russian nationalists, they're saying, listen, we're one country. Like, what is it that we've been artificially divided? Although Ukraine certainly has its own kind of language, which is still very similar to Russian, but culturally it has some dis different differences. Like Eastern Ukraine is very similar, much more similar to Russia, and is very heavily Russian. And even generally, most people there are Russian Orthodox. And then in the West, you have some who are Catholic, and you have some who have the, the Ukrainian Orthodox actually separated from the Russian Orthodox. So you have the Ukrainian Orthodox and you have the Russian Orthodox and you have the Catholic. So it's like a mosaic, you know, this land was ruled by Poles, or Poland at one point controlled this, right? And then Russia and so on. So it went back and forth between, it never really had its own independent existence until the fall of the Soviet Union. When did the Soviet Union fall? 1989? Yeah, officially in 91. Uh, it began in 89, right? So in November 89, when the Berlin Wall came down and then it took two years for everything to, you know, to make it official. And that brings us to this, this important calculation. So in the same place in Sanhedrin, what we're reading here, it says like this, that the world, like we said earlier, is supposed to exist, civilization as we know it is supposed to exist for 6,000 years, 6,000 years. How do we know that? From many places. It's like all over. You see it right in Bereshit. Because Bereshit, is the first verse of the Torah, the letter Aleph appears six times 
in that first verse. So God created the world, and there's Aleph appears six times. What's Aleph? Aleph literally means a thousand, right? Aleph is Aleph. So six thousand, six, that's it, six thousand. Six days. Barashit also literally means in, in Aramaic, he created six. Like he created for six thousand years. And you can even parallel each of the days of creation to a millennium of human history and see how actually the Torah kind of secretly encodes and prophesizes what will happen in those millennia. So hopefully we'll do that in a, in a future shear soon. There's 6,000 years, right? And each day, we also read in Tehillim that like in the heavens, a thousand years on earth is like a day in the heavens, right? That like a thousand years for us, for, you, for, for the heavens, for God is like one day. So a day is 6,000 years and so on. Uh, sorry, a day is a thousand years and we have 6,000 years, which corresponds to like a cosmic week. There's 6,000 years of history. And then the seventh thousandth is like the cosmic Shabbat, right? A thousand years of Shabbat. And before that Shabbat, we have this messianic age to get the world ready for like a totally spiritual millennium. So when does that messianic age begin? In the 6,000 years. No, at 6,000, it's Shabbat. 240 yeah. years before the 6,000 Why that much? Eh? Why that much though? Why that much actually it's correct. <laughs> it's good. <laughs> that's exactly right. So what was the, question? the question is at, at 6,000, that's already the Shabbat, the ah. cosmic Shabbat. But when does the messianic age to prepare for that begin? Because you need time to prepare for, for Shabbat. Yeah. Right. So, how much time do you need to prepare for Shabbat? The last part of a, of, you need a thousand of a day. Right. Well, <laughs> kind of, yeah. But when do you, are you allowed to work like Friday morning? Are you allowed to go to work? Sure, you're allowed to go to work. So you don't need the whole Friday to get ready for Shabbat. Right. When do you start getting ready for Shabbat? In the afternoon. Officially, in the afternoon, right? That's six hours before. You know, the Jewish day and night, we always split into 12 hours, right? There's a Shazmani. That we always go into 12 hours of day, 12 hours of night. So you have Chatzot is like the middle. One-fourth is 250. Right? Hmm? One-fourth of 1,000 is 250. Exactly. So, we are right so we are if right you there. have to get ready for Shabbat six hours before Shabbat, so what is the cosmic six hours? Is a quarter of a day, which is 250 years, so which is the year 5750. We are in 5782. So 5750, do your math. How many years ago was that? 32 years ago, right? Which was exactly when the Soviet Union collapsed, right? So, Rosh, just to make it clear, Rosh Hashanah of 5750 was, it was September 89. And then in November 89, you have the Berlin Wall falls down, right? So you literally have, it's like one, so the Moscow falls, right? Like the Red Empire falls at, right at the start of the, the Ikvot HaMashiach, of the Messianic Age. And remember now the prophecy, when the third Rome falls, there won't be a fourth Rome. So at that time, many people thought, okay, Mashiach is coming. People who knew this, obviously, which in the religious world, including mainly the Lubavitcher Rebbe, because the Lubavitcher Rebbe plays a big role here, because the Lubavitcher Rebbe also played a big role in bringing the Soviet Union down, right? He was very instrumental, you know, he was very involved politically. He was always sending his shlichim there in secret and making sure the Jewish life is going and, and doing whatever he can to thwart the communist spread. And the Lubavitcher Rebbe, everybody was expecting him to be Mashiach. And now here is this... You know, the, the, in, in, we're in 1991, right? Everybody thinks he's Mashiach. Now this is happening. The Soviet Union falls, right? Jews are coming en masse to Israel, right? Like a million people from the, from so the former Soviet died? Union. He died in 94, right? So those last few years, 
And it seemed like imminent. It seemed imminent. And on top of that, there's an idea. If you read Ishael, Isaiah chapter 63, it describes Mashiach as, as coming. Remember, where is Mashiach sitting? At the gates of Rome. Yeah. Right? Mashiach is in Rome. He comes from Rome. And the Lubavitcher became from Ukraine. He was born in Ukraine. He was born in Mikolaev, which is Nikolaev, Nikolaev today. Or they change it to Mikolaev today. <laughs> he was born in Nikolaev, and now it's Mikolaev. Yeah, he was born in what's today Ukraine. Right? Not that he considered himself Ukrainian, but he, he referred to himself as like coming from Russia or whatever, like the Russian speaking, right? But basically everybody's Russian speaking. Like today Ukrainians try to push their own language, but still most Ukrainians speak Russian. Like, Pretty much all of them speak Russian, right? And for a lot of them, it's their main language. So even though right now they're trying to, as much as possible, to get away from Russian and not use it, uh, but you know, everybody from the former Soviet Union speaks Russian. Basically, that's their first language. So Mashiach coming from a dome, a lot of people pl played that into this idea of the Lubavitcher Rebbe. He's, he's Russian. He's from a dome, and the roof is coming down. And it's, so you can see how this actually to explain also the messianic fervor around the Lubavitcher Rebbe, right? And and there's. I mean, there's little, like we said, there's a Mashiach in every generation, right? So there's an idea that there's always a, a, a potential Messiah in every generation. So there's no reason why he couldn't have been the Mashiach, right? So now we are where we are today with this current conflict. So we already said that Rome fell, or the third Rome fell, but did it really fall? Because it came right back. It never really, is this really the conflict that'll bring down Rome officially? Is that really what we were what uh, Rabbi Yossi was really talking about, because Putin's just the continuation of the, of the Soviet Union in some ways, in many ways, in terms of his, his, the way that he's controlling the country right now, he's 100% from the Soviet playbook, right? No dissent, no nothing. You get arrested for the, the smallest little thing. You just put up a peace sign and you get arrested, right? So very Soviet style. <clears throat> Having said that, Let's look at some of this. We'll finish with this, looking at this conflict a little bit, both sides of the conflict, right? Because for Ukraine, this is like just a military aggression. This is just Russian nationalism. They're just trying to take over this Ukraine that's trying to be independent, that's trying to join the European Union, that's trying to become more European and detach from its Russian history. And they are distinct people. And what is Russia now coming in and, and killing us and whatever? So yeah, that's, that's very valid for sure. We have to look at also Russia's perspective here, which is not being presented in the media because Russia is just like the villain right now. Um, and they are the aggressors, no doubt about it. But if you listen to what they're saying also, there's a few claims that they've, they've brought up. Right? We're gonna ignore the nationalist claim that Ukraine is part of Russia because whatever, that's, that's ridiculous. Um, it's ridiculous because everything was once part of something else, right? So uh, Ukraine's already an independent state. That's it, it's too late, all right? You're not gonna reabsorb it. They already have a strong <clears throat> nationalist independent identity. But then there's this like, Putin keeps saying that he's denazifying Ukraine. Supposedly that there's like, they're Nazis now or whatever, or somebody's now, or in Eastern Ukraine, they're Nazis. Now on that, he, he has a point because the Ukrainian military or paramilitary, it's hard to distinguish between what is the Ukrainian military officially and what's like a paramilitary group. But one of their biggest forces, the Azov Battalion, which is 100% neo-Nazi and like doesn't even deny it. And I actually just saw one of their, 
their founder, who's saying that the role of the Ukrainian nation is to liberate the world from the Semites, right? And to the untermensch, the subhuman, whatever, and to bring back the Aryan race, like white supremacy. So like, they're very unapologetic. They, they were the ones that killed the Jews in the Orthodox. Also, of course. Most of the Jews. Yeah, they helped, they, they collaborated. They were, they were, Many of them collaborated with the Nazis, were very proud to wear their SS uniforms. We know some of the, one of the worst massacres was the Babi Yar massacre in Ukraine yeah. and so on. So they were very happy to collaborate. Many of them, again, not all of them. Right, you can't, not all of them. There are many Ukrainians also under the Hasidei Motolam, the righteous among the Gentiles in, in Yad Vashem and so on. But also there is a strong kind of like fascist neo-Nazi element there, right? And the, the Azov Battalion, it's the only military in the world, the Ukrainian military, that has an openly neo-Nazi group in it, right? That doesn't even like try to deny it. Nowadays? Now, today. Well, today. It's the only military, certainly in the Western world, that has an openly neo-Nazi group incorporated into the military. So that's a big problem, right? Are they now, are they running the country? No. But they do have a political party. Is it conceivable that they might gain more seats with time and, and you know, make Ukraine a whatever a neo-Nazi state? It's possible. Is it unlikely, but it's possible. So does Putin have an argument there? He has somewhat of an argument. Right? Maybe it's overblown, but there is a Nazi aspect there that has to be, there is a serious anti-Semitism problem in any case. Just that, that could be a fact part of his propaganda that he just Of course. Oh yeah. So if you saw his rally recently, he had like 200,000 people in a stadium and like the big sign behind him was like a world without Nazis. That's like, he's going all in on this. I'm denazifying Ukraine. Uh, his main thing though, and what he's been saying constantly in the in his press conference and so on, is that, listen, we cannot have Ukraine join NATO, right? It's right on our doorstep. We can't have the U.S. now building bases here and putting missiles here. In the same way the U.S. will never allow, or Cuba, Cuba right? How many times has the U.S. tried to invade Cuba, assassinate its leaders, whatever, to prevent Russia from putting bases and missiles there? Right? So it's the same thing, right? You could, the U.S. doesn't want missiles in Cuba. Russia doesn't want missiles in Ukraine. Right? It's right on their doorstep. So they don't want... Russia, uh, Ukraine to join NATO, they're saying this has to stay neutral forever. And that's one of the things that they're asking in the negotiations right now. Ukraine has to guarantee that they will never join NATO. It has to stay a neutral territory, a buffer zone between East and West. And he, he, he said that like this, if, if that doesn't happen, it can cause World War III. Because if Ukraine joins NATO, and then there's some conflict with Russia over whatever, imagine this Azov battalion starts something, the Russia has to respond, and then all of NATO has to respond, and now you have World War III. So he said that I'm actually not starting World War III. I'm trying to prevent World War III here. So you have to, like, there's two sides here. And, and the most interesting argument right now, if you've been paying attention the last week and a half, <clears throat> is both sides are accusing each other of, some, of the same thing. Mm -hmm. Russia has been going out saying, having its generals and its spokespeople showing, look at all these bioweapons facilities we've destroyed. Ukraine had a lot of bioweapons research facilities during the Soviet Union. And after the Soviet Union collapsed, America took them over and they were supposed to dismantle them. But of course, oops, they didn't, they forgot. And so you have all these important bioweapons facilities in Ukraine and Russia is taking them out. And first, um, the, the U.S. denied it, said, no, what are you talking about? Yeah. Like, those are public health facilities, vaccine research, no way, no way. Now they've actually admitted it. Yeah, you know, we, we do have these facilities, right? 
there I say similar to the Wuhan lab, right, in China. So Russia's claiming that they're trying to prevent like a bioweapon, another bioweapon attack on the world. So that's been their argument. The U.S. first was denying it. Now, if you've been listening, the U.S. is accusing Russia of start wanting to launch some bioweapons. Russia will use bioweapons and chemical weapons. So each side is accusing the other of potentially launching bioweapons. And ultimately, it doesn't matter who's going to do it. Right? But God forbid, that would be the most catastrophic thing. Today also, well, I don't know if it was today or yesterday, but the White House also saying, now watch out for Russian cyber attacks. Right? So each side is now accusing the other of trying to use hackers to, to, to shut down the country. And apparently already Germany lost, like in Germany, like 2,000 wind power uh, turbines are down after a cyber attack. So imagine if there's a cyber attack you know, that shuts the electricity. So there's a lot of potentially frightening scenarios that can come from this. Bioweapons, cyber attack, and each side is accusing the other of trying to do this, depending on who you listen to, which media you listen to. So this war could actually escalate to something much worse, hopefully not. They're, they're in negotiations, like what is really going to happen going forward, we don't know. But the, the idea is, like you see now a little bit of the history of this, <clears throat> Ukraine, Russia, where it came from, what's going on. Yeah, so we're at 5782. It can't go to 6,000 because at 6,000, that's already the Shabbat. Before that, we still need Mashiach to come. We need to fix Israel, rebuild the temple, do all these things, bring everybody back. Like there's all these things. That same place in Sanhedrin says Mashiach will be the king of Israel, then his son, then his son. It'll be like three generations. So it can't go to 6,000. There has to be a lot of time before. Right, which is why we're so limited, right? We only have 218 years left, tops. And there's still all these things that have to happen. The resurrection of the dead also has to happen before that. Yeah, before all the dead have to come to life. Right? And they come in stages. The, the most righteous people first. and the night, blah, 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 blah. So there's so much that still has to happen that we're like pretty much there. So hopefully we're there. And so I'll just, I'll end with, uh, in Masechet Sota, it's another one of the places that says, how will Mashiach, like what's the world going to look like when Mashiach comes? And it's a very famous one. We've discussed this before. Uh, all these like phrases that you've heard that that the generations like a generation of dogs and uh, that like the real wisdom of the ancient sages will be rotten and like people won't understand it and the people that people will hate religious people right there's gonna be like a push against religious people and there will be many informers and like cancel culture that anything you say you'll be informed on and like you you know that you can't you'll have to be scared of what you say and that there won't be any more uh, coins in your pocket it's gonna be everything digital currency bitcoin that's what it says in the gemara bitcoin no yeah. so that there's not gonna be any more physical currency and so on it has all these signs and then it says how terrible the situation will be, that a person's main, a man's biggest enemies are his own family members, that mothers, daughters are rebelling against mothers, daughters-in-law against mothers-in-law, young people against the elders, right? There's no respect for the elders anymore. Like all these things, right? It's our generation, yeah. you have it today. Everything you have today, everything. It says that there's going to be tons of refugees all over and nobody knows how to take them. And again, refugee crisis. Now 3 million Ukrainians displaced. Who's going to take them? We just had last year Afghans displaced before, and this, and Syrians, and Mexicans, and everybody's displaced. Where are these people? So the, the text says there's going to be plenty of people that are going from gvul to gvul, from border to border, and nobody wants to take them. Every single thing in that list has come true. Every single one. And it ends by saying, 
that there's nobody to rely on or to whatever, nobody to, nothing to hope for except our Father in Heaven. And one of the most powerful things that I heard a long, long time ago, um, I don't remember really who first said this, but I, I remember hearing this in, in yeshiva what, a, a long time ago, and it was like, and said this, that that last sentence, that Ein al is also part of the problem of that generation. So it's not like there's all these bad things, that there's nobody to rely on except God. There's nobody left to rely on. It's, the world is so horrible. Boom, 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 boom. And there's nobody to rely on except God. Instead of reading it as all of these are the bad things, and then that there's nobody to rely on, there's an idea that you should read the whole thing as everything that's wrong with the world, including that last thing, that people have given up and say, well, pff, that's it. There's nothing we can do. There's nobody to rely on. We're just going to wait for God to fix it. To fix it. That's also part of the problem. Right? We can't just give up and say, forget it. I can't do anything about it. Right? Our job is still, like, it might seem hopeless. Right? Most Jews are secular. Like, what are the, like, nothing's going to, doesn't matter. And that was the Lubavitcher Rebbe's also his vision in saying, like, it really doesn't matter. You go out and you reach out to every Jew. You go on the corner and you put tefillin on every Jew. What's the worst that can happen? He'll tell you no. Right? But you go out and you try to reach everybody and you try to awaken that spark in every Jew. And that's how you get, you know, you bring it back. So that's really what we have to do. That's our they, mission. They did a great job. An amazing job, exactly. Amazing. Amazing. All all right. So now, though, you have to also keep in mind that all the prophecies about the Messianic age had never happened before until now, including you just have to read Yechezkel. Because read what Yechezkel chapter 37, 38 says. And by the way, that's where it talks about Gogu Magog. And where is Magog? According to the earliest source that identifies Magog, Josephus, he says Magog is Scythia. And Scythia would later become Kazaria, which is Ukraine and Russia, basically. Right. So the idea of Gogu Magog, there is an opinion that it's also, and, and Ezekiel says, and all the prophets say, that the final war will come from the north. They all say it's from the north. And in what's directly north of Israel? Just Lebanon, Turkey, and that's it, in Russia, okay, and about, Ukraine. What about Iran? Iran is there too, right? So you read Yechezkel chapter 37, 38. Gogu Magog, who does he ally with? The first name, Paras, right? And who are his enemies? Uh, who are his supporters? Paras, Kush, it's Togarma, Turkey, Africa, all of Paras. So I, I'm just saying, Ezekiel says, when's Mashiach going to come? Read it carefully. He says, first there's going to be a Churban. First Jews are going to be decimated. Following the Churban, they're going to come back to Israel, reestablish a prosperous state. Then Gogu Magog will happen. So are you saying that Gogu Magog is related to what's happening now in Ukraine? I maybe, think it very well could be. Maybe, yeah. we don't know. We don't know yet. It's always like you only know after the fact. So you're saying that yeah. Russia, the, 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 the Rome hasn't fallen yet, and this could be the yeah. I think that Putin's just a continuation of the Soviet Union, because he is literally, he was, he's part of the Soviet machine, right? He was trained, he's a KGB operative, and I, I don't think the Soviet Union idea really ever disappeared entirely. Moscow didn't fall. It was a very peaceful transition, right? The, the phrasing of Rabbi Yossi is that it falls and needs to be rebuilt. Moscow, the exactly. There was no war. There was, it was a very peaceful, so just quick transition. It could be. It could go, get to that. It could, again, it, we never know, right? It could be in two weeks they sign an agreement and yeah. there's peace. And it could be that agreement doesn't last. We, we just, it's such a fragile situation. So now is the time to help each other reconnect to Torah, to God, and help our friends, neighbors, everybody, family to connect. And hopefully we'll merit the coming of Mashiach very Amen. soon. Thank you very much. Yeah, it's beautiful. Beautiful.